I really mean that. I get seized by an image. It's like writing a poem. There's an image of something or a phrase that doesn't let go of me or a voice that invites me to wrestle with it. It's a very visceral thing. The idea brings a kind of energy with it and a sense of excitement, and that sense of excitement really starts me writing. I don't know what I'm wrestling with until I get through. The best ideas I get are the ones that tug and tug at me, and they, have, they seem to have a little string attached. And that little string, if I pull it long enough, leads right down to my unconscious. Um, I'm sure this is so because why else would the idea be so exciting to me in the first place? My best ideas I find only at the end have an emotional agenda that I don't know about. And it's only when I finish writing the story that I find out what that agenda is. Baby came out, baby come out, began with an image I had, a fantasy, and I wrote a poem about it of a little baby, a little princess in a buggy, just the mistress of all she surveyed. And I began a dialogue between that little girl and her mother. And I was very surprised when the book took a challenging turn and the baby said she was not in a hurry to be born. I had no idea what to do. She had to be convinced to come out. And that plot certainly came out of my unconscious. It turned out to be my own emotional autobiography. <laughs> when I began the book, I thought I was the mother speaking, but I wasn't the mother. I was, I was partly the mother, but I was mostly the baby. I also find that the most fertile ideas I have come with a voice attached to them. It's all very Jungian. Uh, there's this voice, uh, baby come out, seemed to me like a wise old woman that literally read to me the first line of the book. Where this voice comes, I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, but I just know enough to listen to it. Of course, one of the sources of all my ideas is uh, our other writers. Before I wrote my first book, I worked at Harper and Row, and I'd read so many picture books, books with the voices of Ruth Krauss and Margaret Wise Brown and Maurice Sendak, and it was their books that gave me the courage to let the wild rumpus in my own head begin and to not be afraid to follow where it led me. A few summers ago, I was writing poems about food, and I wrote a poem about making blitzes. I love that image so much, but no plot came out of that writing, just a lot of description. So I put the poem away. Then a year later, I was reading Amy Tan's book, The Kitchen God's Wife. Something in that fantastic family story and the images in it resonated with my blitz poem. I took it out again, and another voice appeared. It wasn't a Chinese voice. It was an old Jewish grandmother voice. I've never had a wise old Jewish grandmother, and I've always wanted one. And here she was in my head, thanks to Amy Tan. So I set the blintz-making time uh, back in Minsk, and that's where I found the emotional agenda that those blintzes had for me. The process of making them is all about a relationship between a girl and her mother, and they literally bring spring to an entire town by making blintzes. The title of the book became Grandma Beatrice Brings Spring to Minsk. How you can go from the kitchen god's wife and Amy Tan to this, I have no idea. That's why I'm a writer. I love to see where things lead me. But I would never have written this book without Amy Tan's voice, and also without reading a lot of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. I had written a lot of picture books before I began writing stories dealing with my own Jewish background. And it wasn't until I read Cynthia Ozick's article about Hanukkah in the New York Times Magazine that a plot for a Jewish story came to me. It was Ozick's excitement about the holiday that resonated with me and gave me the courage to have an idea for a Jewish book. In fact, it was a woman writing about the Jewish tradition that gave me permission as a woman to dare to join that tradition. And it wasn't until Cynthia Ozick sort of gave me that kind of permission that I wrote 
my Hanukkah story, Lacus Nambosos. I'd also been reading a lot of Sholem Aleichem stories at the time, and I had a sense that I was channeling Sholem Aleichem. Um, so I really think that it's obvious to me that you get ideas by reading and by being in the company of other writers, either in their books or in flesh. In the end, getting ideas to me is so mystical. Uh, there is no real answer to the question. There is no recipe to follow. All you can do is be open to ideas. The best advice I ever got on the subject was from my boss at, at Harper and Row, Ursula Nordstrom, who was a genius. She found this advice in something Martha Graham wrote somewhere. I have no idea where. But she constantly passed it along in writing to all her nervous authors. And I will end by passing along to you. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium, and it will be lost. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours, clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. You have to keep open and aware to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. <coughs>
my favorite books of hers, though, comes from that series about that family of dancing bears. It's called Speak Up, Blanche, and it's about a very shy little lamb uh, that gets uh, sort of adopted by this uh, theatrical bear family. And it turns out that Blanche is really too shy to do anything until she discovers that she might be allowed to paint the scenery. Blanche blossoms. And this is how the book ends. And by the way, you are no longer shy, Eva observed. No, said Blanche. I am an artist. <laughs>
my own books and see after the fact what the ideas are. Their sources vary from the formless memory of being small and overlooked to an unconscious wish for reconciliation with my late father. The son of a famous pianist told me that at six or so he had to grope his way through a darkened chateau to tell his mother that his sister had vomited in their bed. And I thought this was a great idea for a children's book. The editor I told it to realized that it was a revolting <laughs> in what had to be a much larger imagined story. The idea of turning uh, Blondin, the high wire walker, into a burnt out case who needs an eager young girl led me to recover buried uh, memories of my own childhood. And the story's relation to my life, which is the real idea in Moret, never occurred to me until a friend pointed it out. Uh, I want to say something about pictures, uh, since I really do tell stories as much with pictures as with words. And we tell stories rather than list ideas, because we want to draw people in. And drawing, I find, requires imagining in the same way that writing does. Uh, and I can't simply provide an arresting surface. I have to get inside characters and settings, feel them fully, draw them from the inside out, the opposite of an aesthetic or a graphic technique. And in that way, the pictures will serve the story. Uh, and they, are, they, they don't represent an idea about something because the idea is nothing, just as the surface look is nothing, or at best, a passing pleasure until you really imagine yourself inside and feel the soul of what's depicted. And of course, in getting visual ideas, uh, I'm just, my brain is just full of visual ideas that come from, from observations of light, from, from art history, from comic strips, from every possible source. So whatever comes out has been thoroughly digested to return to the revolting uh, image I mentioned earlier. <laughs> um, and finally, I just want to say something about being blocked, which I was for years and years and years. And, and uh, I, in that period, I forced ideas out, and they were unsuccessful because they weren't honest. And a dishonest idea is a boring idea. Uh, so I was getting nowhere until Picnic, which, which Stephen described. And uh, it was there that I think I lost the self-consciousness of having an idea. And the breakthrough came when I laid out the story using little thumbnail sketches and realized I didn't need words. And words were what, at that point, were inhibiting me. And it was the way I was framing it, was using words. So uh, that was a tremendous boost for me. And other tremendous boosts have come from, from positive feedback, from uh, just doing the work. I mean, the more you work, the more ideas will come to you. absolutely a given. And it's the only way they'll come. And uh, so, so, uh, good response. I've been very fortunate, uh, especially lately, in having good feedback. And lo and behold, I've had more ideas, and, and that's been great.
Uh, he has written 15 nonfiction books for young people. Uh, the most recent of them, published this month by HarperCollins, is called Be Seated, a book about chairs. Other titles include Chimney Sweeps, Yesterday and Today, The Truth About Unicorns, George Washington, a picture book biography, Milk, the Fight for Purity, and The Riddle of the Rosetta Stone. What should be obvious from these titles, and what has always delighted me most about Jim's work, is that very frequently the idea he has chosen for a book is a totally unexpected one. But it's an idea that invariably appeals to the child. Jim develops his book in ways that are both fascinating and as fascinating as they are informative. The books are full of wonderful details, anecdotes, tales, history. Chimney Sweeps has a whole chapter in it about the climbing boys, a day in the life of a climbing boy in London in 1800, the boys who used to go up into the chimneys and clean them. The books are written in a clean, gentle, enveloping style that draws you in and keeps you there. Jim's books have won an American Book Award for children's nonfiction and three Golden Kite Awards for nonfiction. Nine of them have been named ALA Notable Children's Books. James Museum of Art 
back in 1986. Cleveland is my home city, and I go back there quite often, and I love to visit their marvelous art museum. Uh, this exhibit was called Comfortably Seated, and it had examples from their own collection of seat furniture going back to the ancient Egyptians and coming down to uh, uh, Marcel Breuer and some of the experimental 1980 chair And I was fascinated by, by the scope of this and picked up a brochure that had a preliminary bibliography of books to pursue further. So that's what started that particular idea. It came from the experience I had. In the case of nonfiction, a lot of times ideas are suggested to a writer. It can happen, uh, an editor can suggest an idea. Uh, but a rather interesting example of this came uh, about, I was speaking in, in the late 80s in Marin County, California to a group of teachers and librarians. And as always, there was a question and answer session at the end of the program. And one librarian rather tentatively asked me if I was open to suggestions for ideas for books. And I said, of course I, I was, and I wondered what it would be, because a lot of times uh, a suggestion is not appropriate for one reason or another. It just doesn't uh, touch any nerve in you, but you listen to it politely. But in this instance, the uh, uh, questioner, or the person making the suggestion, asked me if I had ever thought of writing a book about unicorns. And she said that her 10 to 12 year olds uh, were interested in unicorns and there was not a book that really had solid information about them. Well, as a nonfiction writer, I keep big fat idea folders. I clip news stories from papers. I clip magazine articles. Things that <clears throat> interest me. Fragments of, I'm not always sure why they interest me. For instance, I've had for years an article from the Smithsonian about shoes throughout history, and I've never done anything with it so far. But I know it's there, and it, it just intrigued me as a possibility. Well, I thought to myself, when the librarian made this suggestion, don't I have some articles back home about unicorns from the Smithsonian, maybe from natural history? I didn't have time to look them up, but two weeks later, I spoke in uh, York, no, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to a meeting of the Pennsylvania Library Association. And guess what question I was asked in the question and answer session there, or what suggestion was made to me? Yes. Somebody said, yes, uh, have you ever thought of writing a book about unicorns? My students in Newcastle, Pennsylvania would really like to know more about them. So I thought, I'm getting a message. <laughs> and I did go home, and I looked up those articles, and, and uh, what uh, I realized was that the idea that had interested me about that material was not to collect legends, but to try to find out what actual sources inspired the stories of unicorns. And that resulted five years later in my book, The Truth About Unicorns. Uh, sometimes an idea is pure serendipity. Uh, Stephen mentioned chimney sweeps before. The idea for that book came about some years ago when I was flying to Oklahoma City on business, and a young man with long hair carrying what I thought was a musical instrument case took the seat next to him, and he put the case up above. And I thought he was a rock musician, and I figured we would have nothing whatsoever to talk about. 
The flight was delayed. We did get to talking. We ended up having a sandwich and a beer at the airport in Chicago. And it turned out he was not a rock musician. He was a chimney sweep. He was also a graduate of Dartmouth with a major in history. Uh, he was a manufacturer of chimney sweeping equipment. Uh, he liked the work because it was flexible and allowed him a lot of free time to pursue his historical interests. And he, uh, in the case, were not, was not a musical instrument. It was samples of the folding brooms he made for the thousands of chimney sweeps around the country. And he was going to demonstrate them at a chimney sweeps convention <laughs> in Oklahoma City. Well, we finally had the hour and a half flight. He got me very interested in this idea. Later, he read my manuscript for accuracy, provided some photos for the book. And to give you an idea of his sense of humor, he inscribed an adult book he'd written, a how-to book, how, called Be Your Own Chimney Sweep, that he sent me for research. He inscribed it for Jim, don't make an ash of yourself. <laughs> uh, that was pure serendipity. I had never cleaned a chimney. I still haven't cleaned a chimney. But thanks to Christopher Curtis, I wrote a book about chimney sweeps. To sum up, I would suggest that whatever you write, whenever you get an idea, you ask yourself uh, three questions, at least. And I'm going to bring up something here that may seem a little different than the others, but maybe it's because I do write nonfiction. First of all, is it a fresh idea that will result in an unusual and an attention-getting book? That's important. Two, will there be an audience and hence a market for it? And in terms of nonfiction, that is an important consideration. But most important of all, and here I will echo the other speakers, does it intrigue you? Does it fascinate you enough to make you want to spend, to spend a year, maybe two years, sometimes three years on the research and the writing? Um, and if the idea passes muster on all three of these counts, then I would say by all means pursue it, because chances are it will result, first of all, in a satisfying experience for you as you write, and then in a successful book for young people. Thank you.
two Newbery Honor Awards and four Coretta Scott King Awards. He writes about the real problems faced by young African Americans growing up in Harlem. He captures the flavor of the place and other people who live there, their humor and tragedy and the injustice they suffer. The style, it seems to me, has always been gritty, but warm, and yet in more recent books, there would appear to be a harder age creeping in and a greater sense of urgency. As he has begun to explore more deeply, it seems to me, the real nature of friendship and the connections between friends and between fathers and sons. Jump shots. 
some aspect of me, but uh, how I relate to the world sometimes through sports, sometimes through uh, other experiences. And very often I would write something, and I, I, as much as I write fairly quickly, I would rush through a book, and I'll be very pleased with it now. Finish the first draft, which is so important to me that the author finish. And I'll walk away and I'll come back a week later and I'll say, What the hell is this? <laughs> and I'll begin, I'll begin writing, and what will come to the book, if that book is to become anything, it will become me. And I'm writing about my life over and over again, bits and pieces of it. Bits and pieces. And I'm arranging them, rearranging them, as I understand myself, and I think uh, through my understanding of myself, the understanding of, 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 of living. I most recently, I, I do all kinds of books, I've done a lot of books. Um, most recently, I, I've done a picture book in which, since I can't paint or even draw a straight line, Emily says I can't do anything. Because my wife drives for me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> packs my bags, you know. Um, I collect photographs, and I, I did a book of photographs and, and, and bad poetry. Um, <laughs> the bad poetry is, it's okay. It's okay. I think bad poetry is a place in the world. <laughs> but the photographs are beautiful. And the photographs are all the black children taken between 1860 and 1920. I've been collecting all these photographs. And that seems certainly like an idea that um, is superficial to my being. But then, of course, what I discovered was that I've got a thousand photographs that I've been collecting for years of these children. And they deeply affect me. The children deeply affect me. The very fact that I write for children, because so many people, kids ask me, uh, they do ask me where do I get my ideas, and adults ask me, when am I going to grow up write something you know, for real people? And the, the very fact that I'm so drawn writing for children. When I think of writing uh, for adults, I think of silly ideas, you know, some sort of, sort of silly detective thing, a uh, diversion, to show my son, my know-it-all son, that I can do it. You know? But really, I really believe that I'm writing from memory. And I don't always understand the memory that I'm writing about, but I'm writing What's wonderful about sinking into a Polar Fox novel is that that's exactly what you do. 
imagery is vivid, the characterizations are sharp. The luminous cadence prose immediately establishes the right mood and scene and creates its own complete world. Paula, it seems to me, uh, is most concerned in her work, and I'm not wrong, but I think it's so, about deceptions, about how people are not always and frequently are not what they seem about paradox, but also with contemplating the true face of evil, whether it's on a slave ship in 1840 or in the Hudson Valley in the 1920s. Paula has written 21 books for young people and six adult novels. She received the Newbery Medal in 1974 for The Slave Dancer and the Hans Christian Andersen Medal in 1978 for the entire body of her work. She received the American Book Award in 1980 for A Place Apart, and numerous other awards and fellowships have come her way. Some of her books for children are One-Eyed Cat. Some of her other books besides The Slave Dancer, I should say, are One-Eyed Cat, Monkey Island, and The Village by the Sea. Among her adult novels are Desperate Characters and A Servant's Tale. Paul Fox. The letters I have received from children over the years have been, though not always, reassuring because they prove to me that readers of my books do exist, something I frequently find hard to credit. Of course, some of them aren't so reassuring. A sixth grade boy wrote, I like your books okay, but not as much as Judy Bloom's. <laughs> Another said, I thought you'd like to know you did not win the first prize in our book contest. <laughs> Others airily tell me that they have not read some book of mine they were supposed to read, but I should write back to them anyhow. And some urge me to reply at once so they can get their reports done in time for a crucial grade. Then there are the questions that could have been devised for interviewing criminals. What was your motivation in writing? what are your career goals? Children I knew were caught up 
enraptured by story. The writer was, if noted at all, incidental and abstraction. I cannot help but think of, think of teachers set the tones of letters when they are class assignments. Except for variation in handwriting, these letters tend to be featureless, and they near, nearly always have to contain two questions. Did you make this book up? And the subject of this panel, where do you get your ideas from? Making up a story seems to mean to many children that it is not real, that is, that it's untrue. Sometimes I quote E.B. White's words to them. Real life is only one kind of life. There is also the life of the imagination. It seems to me that getting ideas as an idea suits our country. It is a practical, consumer sort of endeavor. Find the place where ideas are sold, buy one, bring it home, and set it to work. What I hardly ever see in letters is the word imagination. Perhaps it has been banished, its place taken by those other words, relate to, identify with, as though reading has nothing to do with news, the very meaning of the word novel, but provides a mirror in which the reader seeks to find only what is familiar, making the self ever more insular. Perhaps children could be helped to grasp more about real life if they were shown how it is imagination that illuminates reality. Edwin Muir, the Scott poet, wrote, Imagination is indeed the most imperfect thing. It is not dependable. It can come and go. It is subject to temptation. It can be carried away and lose balance. It must always remain imperfect. The justification of its imperfection is that it gives us a more profound and various understanding of life than personal experience or practical sense ever can. That is its main use, and that is why no humane and civilized society can dispense with it. Television criticized for its violence and sexual squalor, has, in my view, an equally pernicious effect on children. It has destroyed local life, the local life of childhood, whether it is pavement, empty lot, country road, or field, those places where, in private, a child begins amusing discovery of the world. Now, there is a television backyard all over the United States. The most resonant children's literature begins in local life and leads out into the mysterious and complex life of the world. The least resonant to me evokes no more than the banal, flattening certainties, the insistence upon which appear to me to be television's singular ambition. What I write to children when they ask me about those ideas is that certain people and events catch my deepest interest, that I am a storyteller, and that when I finish one story, I watch the drift in my head, and very soon I'm thinking of another story. All one's experiences shape one's stories. Imagination is conjunctive and unifying. 
not disjunctive and separating. Many children, almost with the onset of speech, begin to make up stories. Imagination is natural to them. Of course, idea is a valid, upstanding word, describing schemes, opinions, thoughts, notions, many things. But room should be left for that other word, imagination, which, difficult as it is to define, is all about us the electric atmosphere in which reality is brought into consciousness. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Well, it seems to me that we've learned quite a lot so far. Black 
do was write. And the one thing that he could not do was read. And so at the end of his life, uh, and just before the beginning of his book, uh, when he was dying, he was going through this, this process, this, this cruel process of dying. Um, and I was there, he was trying to communicate after a very difficult uh, period. He's dying, I'm trying to say that I love you, he's trying to, I think in his way he's trying to say the same thing. And I, uh, I thought that by that time he had learned to read. And I bought him uh, a book, a book that I produced at the time, which was called Mangels. And uh, he never made a comment on it. And he never said anything, just put it down. He looked away from me. And I was, uh, I was really hurt. And after, uh, after his death, I went through his effects. And, and I discovered it. I think that might be the question. Thank you. Well, I'm thinking of Monkey Island. It's more recent than me. I remember more about it. I had a very marginal existence as a child. I was kind of I'm sorry, I should speak here. Sorry. Is this better?
lot of people aren't fortunate that way, who might have been in my situation. There were people who were good to me, who rescued me, who pressed pancakes as well as books into my hands. And so I wrote a book about a boy whose mother has left him in a welfare hotel. And uh, he runs away to look for her and finds two men who help him survive this terrible journey that he has to make. Now, it's a story about what is happening now, but that is not why I wrote it. I wrote it, I think, for the same mysterious reasons that other people on this panel have suggested. That I wanted to write it. I didn't know quite how it would come out. There were things in it that I had seen. There's a little boy in it who is beaten by his father who sits outside of a building <clears throat> whom I saw and used to try to take in when I lived on 101st Street a long time ago on the west side. There were all kinds of things that come together. And that's what I meant about conjuncting and connecting. Uh, it's not a literal process. It's very mysterious. I once asked a composer how he wrote music and he looked at me with absolute horror. And I, I understood some years later why he couldn't answer that question. Because it's really unanswerable. If you do it, you know something about it. Fats Waller was once asked by a woman, what's ribbon? And he said, if you have to ask, I can't tell you. <laughs> In a certain way, that's true. But of course, certain things can be told about writing. The, everything comes out of one's life. When I taught classes, college students and anybody tried to give me science fiction, I had to turn away because life on this planet is hard enough. I don't want to think about Orc <laughs> or those places. And um, I, I know that that book, Monkey Island, which was supposed to be topical, which really should only be used for sunburn creams, uh, was really a, st a story about myself in a certain way, told through other people, which is how the self gets to be known through other people, and then back to the self again. I don't think I can say more about that.
feisty little girl, Paris. I, the, uh, the period uh, had to me, it seemed to me, the 1890s, because if, I'm, if I were going to easily invoke Paris visually, that, that would be uh, the period to choose. Um, uh, so Blondin became someone who had to live much later, and, and uh, he was a character. He, was, he, did, he did everything that Blondin did. And I really don't know why, I mean, I certainly wasn't aware as I was writing it of, of putting my father into this book, but that's who it turned out to be. I grew up um, in a household with a sister, and she and I were daredevils, and, and uh, we, we, had, we, had, uh, we had a certain kind of worldly ambition, but we were also stuck in this house with, with a very bitter mother who, who, uh, who had been virtually abandoned by uh, a sort of artistic father who, who wasn't living up to his responsibilities but had a, a kind of uh, romantic aura to us. Anyway, uh, we did a lot of household work, so I put that in without thinking about it. And um, this father figure, literally when he was around, lived in a little back room. I put that in the book without thinking and uh, the, the story really is a, a, a union between the little girl and this, this failed adult male figure. And when I finished the book, I was very worried about it. I, I, I put my whole self into it and worked particularly hard on pictures, which, which were uh, a great leap for me. I tried to make them look more like paintings than anything I'd done before, which meant dropping a pen line and the pen line had been my crutch ever since I started drawing. So I was really on a high wire without a wire while, while doing the artwork for the book. And so I, I struggled and put all of my energy into that. And then when I finished the whole thing, I realized that I had this, what I considered a story that was going to be really creamed by, by librarians and critics for its Freudian implications or I wasn't even sure what, but there was something in there that bothered me a lot. And it, and it really was something that I had unearthed in myself and just wasn't comfortable with yet. And uh, oddly enough, it's, it seemed to strike a nerve. You know, a lot of people seem to see their fathers or something. But, uh, it, it, as, but as always, it, all of that was apparent only after it was finished.
never did, never. And so I put this cloud on the swing, and the book never needed to be revised. It just, I just had a rhythm in my head and images, and it was one long poem. And I wish all my books would happen like that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Jim?
studied law, uh, although she didn't practice, but a house filled with books, and stimulating conversation, and very interesting people. But I was an only child of older parents, and I often felt extremely lonely as a child. And I think I can see in that chapter where I talked about a climbing boy away from his family, carrying on with the work, trying to maintain his spirits. Uh, there's a lot of me in that boy, although as I joked before, I have never cleaned a chimney. But I may write nonfiction, but if I dig down deep enough, I can see a lot of personal connections in what I do also. That makes it even more Jim, I, it seems to me that any writing involves imagination, and I can't imagine even thinking. When I think of the books that I have written uh, and read, and the, the books that I've loved that have been not stories, some of the most wonderful books, the most imaginative books, have been about such things as chimney sweeps, and uh, it, it, imagination illuminates reality. And his biographies. Yeah, oh, yes, yes, so many more. Would, would anyone else like to reply? Would, would any, anyone else on the platform would you like to reply? Well, I have one other question I'm going to ask that, that I am before I, I turn things over to you, the audience. Because um, this is a question that I always want is something that faces me as a writer, and I'm sure it faces lots of you. Um, I'm so uh, accustomed to, to watching a talk show and having a famous writer appear, and, and that writer will say, oh, I have so many ideas, I have enough ideas to last me the rest of my life. I, I could just go on writing nonstop. And I say to myself, well, that's interesting. Uh, I have a lot of ideas too, but there are moments when I draw a blank, when I suddenly don't have an idea, and, and I'm floundering, and I'm thinking that my career has ended. Uh, fortunately, it, that doesn't usually last very long, but the question I would like the panel uh, and not everyone has to answer it, but it would be nice if everyone did. Do you ever not have an idea? And when you don't, what do you do about it? I'll quote Jean Fowler, probably many people know this. Jean Fowler said, writing is easy. You sit there and you look at a piece of paper until drops of blood form <laughs> on your forehead. <laughs> Does no one else want to address that question? Absolutely. No one ever is without an idea. I know Emily was blocked. She said she was once. Uh, by your own guitar. It's a wonderful phrase. Okay. Yes, Jim. I always seem to have 
and it seems to be, when I am able to write a book, available to me, and I can't explain to you why that is so, but it seems to be so. Um, it's very mysterious to me why that is true. Because when I write about a boy lost on a dark street in the city, um, I see it, it seems to me that what I see is what that boy or girl would see. I, I don't have to fight with an adult self, that is. I don't know why. like to ask that of anyone in particular, of the panel as a, as a whole? I don't. No. <laughs> no. Does anyone? Sometimes. <laughs> no, I, I, long years when I wasn't writing, when I was, uh, uh, I, uh, for many years, was editor-in-chief of Clarion Books, a children's book publisher. And uh, I still am a contributing editor, but uh, for, from let's 
see. Originally, I wanted to be a playwright, and, and I got a certain amount of encouragement when I was young, including a Broadway option, but then it didn't work out, and I needed to get a job, and I, I sort of stumbled, literally, into book publishing, and eventually into children's books. And for about 20 years, I kept a journal. I, uh, I hadn't lost my desire to write, but I didn't know what form it might take. And I just tried to capture experience. I have all those notebooks. And every once in a while, I get back into them. I don't keep it as much now, since I'm, I'm, I'm writing other sorts of things. I do occasionally. But I know a lot of uh, kids are being uh, instructed now in, in the value of expressing themselves in this way. And a good friend of mine, and a very good writer named Carlos Stevens, has just done a book with me published for young people about keeping diaries and journals with extracts of children's diaries over the centuries. And it's, it's a fascinating book, and I think it can often lead to other forms of expression. Maybe it doesn't even need to lead to, to creative expression as long as it, it helps you to shape experience in words.
bring to children the art of, of the possible, what, what is possible in, in the human experience. And then, so when I seek, if I look at my own childhood and I write about childhood, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking, I'm looking always to reach in and pull out the possible. I, I would say that I don't feel any sense of betrayal because I don't write about things that are now into which I manage to stealthily uh, place my own childhood or aspects of it because I, I lived in so many different places. I lived in Cuba, I have Spanish, I had all over the place. It isn't that at all. It's that there's so many, there, there are an infinite number of things to write about, but there are only certain things that draw each of us toward it. Otherwise, none of it, we would all be permanently blocked. We try to write about everything. There are certain kinds of children interesting situations. When I say interest, I'm using the word in its deepest sense. Say, did they, right, sometimes they'll say, did this really happen about a And it's a very hard question to answer very simply. I've tried to, I can't think of the answer right now, but what I've tried to say to them is that everything is rooted in the real. Everything comes out because that's the life we know. The, the truth is, is something that lives with the real, but it's another complication. Yes. Oh, yes. That's what I was reading. I was reading Captain's Logs. I was reading uh, the journals of freed slaves. I was reading the cruel reports. I was trying to learn about sailing, about which I knew nothing. Um, you know, I was, uh, I spent a year in the research library in Brooklyn. Just reading. Just reading. Uh, since Tom assumed we
really would not read Anna Karenina to a 44-year-old. You know, there is a kind of sense that we have about what children can take in. At the same time, you want them to, for example, a, a book that I, uh, that Emily illustrated, in, a book of folk tales, a review of it from a teacher in the Middle West said, she didn't recommend the book because there were big words in it. Well, that seems terrible to me, that, that a teacher, you know, the whole thing is to get bigger and bigger and bigger words. But it seems to me that Bruce Bettelheim in Uses of Enchantment talked about, as did Samuel Taylor Coleridge, about the tremendous uses that children make out of these horrible stories of ogres and people being eaten up and witches and enchantment, that there is that potential in all human beings, some instinctive, intuitive, maybe it's DNA in them that's ready to understand that. On the other hand, I don't think I would want to present a five-year-old child with pictures of what Auschwitz looked like when it was liberated. And I, I, I think that is, is, is a kind of sense we all have. I mean, it could be talked about, but it would take a very long time. strongly about and it's, it is picking up definitely on uh, Paula's uh, remarks of the podium. I feel that children today, especially via television but also movies and, and life generally, are exposed hourly to violence without feeling, violence without emotion. And it does seem to me that, that whether you're retelling a grim tale or writing a young adult novel, that uh, to reach a young audience today, I do think that a lot of subject areas are open that didn't used to be. For instance, I can't imagine writing a story about inner city life in any big city today without having guns figure guns and drugs. But what I would say is that as an editor in this instance, more than an author, because I have not explored that 
do you think, though, that we have a responsibility to connect feeling with action? And if there is a violent act to, to say what this does to people, how they feel about it, how it can hurt, because to me, we live in such a numbing culture in so many, many ways, and I think anyone who works with children, who writes for children, needs to somehow get back to the senses and to dispel the numbness. One thing to add to you, Jim, is I read the uh, quaking heart, a boy who was caught in a gang war in the hospital with a bullet, he said, and this really has something television and the unreality, I didn't know bullets hurt. Well, that seems like a 